Hello, welcome to GovGuys, a podcast brought to you by two teachers who are thankful for all the veterans who have served our country. I'm Mr. Hertzler. And I'm Mr. Crowder. And today we are going to be discussing arguably the most important branch of government, but also the one people seem to hate the most. It's Congress. Hate is a pretty strong word though, buddy. I think most people just have a lack of understanding of how Congress operates. Eh, but it might be fair. Congress is super unpopular. In a head-to-head battle, it's less popular than Genghis Khan, head lice, traffic jams, and even Nickelback. So look at this photograph. Why is it that all people continue to vote for their congressperson, but they hate Congress overall? Because haters are going to hate, 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 hate. Ooh, we took care of that one early today. You could say that was swift. So if you're only here for Taylor, you can turn this off now. If you're here for us, I'd like to apologize ahead of time. There's a lot to hit this week, so let's do this. When in the course of human events, it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political bands which have connected them with another, enter we the people of the United States in order to form a more perfect union. Government of the people, by the people, for the people, shall not perish from the earth. Welcome to the Gov Guys Podcast, Episode 3, The Good, The Bad, The Ugly all about the legislative branch. As I stated earlier, this week is all about the legislative branch and the core ideas of the legislative branch or the Congress are all written in Article 1 of the Constitution. And when we're looking at the Constitution as a whole, Article 1 is by far the longest section and seemingly the most complex and important. Yeah, there's a lot of important things in Article 1, especially uh, starting out with the structure of the legislative branch. Uh, you know, back when we were talking about the Articles Confederation, we we had a branch that was one house, unicameral. But in this new legislative branch, we're going to have a two-house system, uh, which is going to be known as a bicameral system. We're going to have a House of Representatives, uh, which is going to be the larger of the two bodies, the one that is closely associated with the citizens of the country. And then we're going to have the Senate. They're going to have more discussion of the laws and bills Um, And they're going to be a little bit smaller, all right? Uh, The House is going to have around 435 individuals, um, and the Senate is going to have about 100 individuals. So so altogether, there are 535 uh, people that work in the legislative branch. Yeah, and we haven't always had 535 members. That has come into existence uh, starting in 1960, I guess it would be, with the addition of Hawaii and Alaska, uh, you know, adding four more Senate seats. Uh, but before that, you know, we are locked into 435 seats in the House of Representatives ever since 1929. Um, what I want to talk about real quick is just kind of the design of each house. You know, like how is it designed to act? How is it designed to be? Uh, and I'm going to start off with the House of Representatives, which, as you mentioned before, is the one most in line with the people. Uh, the House itself is uh, allotted based on the population of the states. So larger states, more populous states, rather are going to have many more representatives in Congress versus, say, a really small state. The goal, generally speaking, is that each House of Representatives member uh, should have around 750,000 people in their congressional districts. It doesn't always work out that way, though. Uh, Why is that, Hertzler? You know, as the country grows, um, we can't change the number of senators, sorry, House members. We always have to have 435 
Um, and as states grow, you know, we're going to have districts that are going to swell over that 750,000. We don't have enough representatives to match the number of people that live in the country. Yeah. And, and another important thing to know is that some states don't have 750,000 people, you know, like Wyoming, Alaska, uh, just, just to name a couple off the top of the head. But the main idea of the House is that because of the fact that they are elected every two years by their congressional constituents, uh, there's this idea that they are most connected to the electorate. Every single election, they have to run. And so ultimately, you have to make sure that you are doing things in accordance with the will of the electorate, at least in theory. We'll talk about why that's not always the case later on down the road. But ultimately, you know, the idea that you're elected every two years means that you are constantly under review by, you know, the people who are hiring you, so to speak. But it also means that you sh need to be able to act very quickly when it comes to legislation. You know, you have two years in which you have a congressional term, but realistically, you know, you only really do stuff in about a year's worth of time because the other year you're running for re-election. Uh, and during re-election years, there's this weird phenomenon which – you know, people don't do really big, really potentially controversial legislation. And so the idea of the House of Representatives, if, if you're going to get things done, it has to be fast. It has to be speedy. Uh, and your goal is to get legislation pumped out there real quickly uh, so that hopefully they become laws. But doesn't always work out that way because ultimately the House, as you mentioned before, is just one out of two chambers of a bicameral legislator. And oftentimes the Senate is not so speedy. Yeah, the Senate is designed to be less speedy. They 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 want the the laws to have time to be discussed and debated. You know, Washington compared to the saucer used to cool hot tea. Like you said, the House has to get done things quickly. So so the Senate is dissecting what the House has created. They're make they're trying to make sure that everything is fair and just. And also, you know, they didn't want bills to be passed really quickly by the American people going back to the American Revolution where these new taxes were just placed on them and the people felt like they had no no say and that they were just you know surprised on them with the Senate is designed to be the place to say hey look this is what's happening we're going to discuss how it's going to work and 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 really try to get the understanding to the American people um, so that these laws are are more understood yeah the Senate is is designed especially to kind of be a log jam of sorts. You have six years in the Senate in a single term, and so you don't have to feel like you're constantly up to the scrutiny of your electorate. You can take your time, you can do things perhaps that might be more controversial uh but ultimately, you don't necessarily have to like constantly be active doing stuff and and, and you know. The other part of this is by design. The Senate initially was not meant to be scrutinized and up to the will of the people. When it was initially designed, the Senate was a chamber in which every state names two senators decided by the state legislatures. So, you know, North Carolina would choose two senators. Virginia would choose two senators. Uh, and, and long story short, the people had no real say in the senators and, and who each state sent. And that's going to be the law of the land up until 1913 when the 17th Amendment is ratified. And with the 17th Amendment, you have the direct election of senators, in which case, you know, nowadays, every two years, about a third of the seats are up for grabs. You know, this this past election that just happened, you know, 35 Senate seats uh, were up for grabs. And ultimately, uh, the people 
you know, you and me now have a deciding vote to cast for our senators, and that's very different from how it used to be. On the very same point that the Senate is designed to be a deliberative body, you have this special debate tactic called the filibuster. And the filibuster, hate it or love it, is going to be a very important tool, especially for the minority party in the Senate, to be able to deliberately slow down legislation. Yeah, yeah, the filibuster is one of those tactics that not a lot of people like. And it's a weird tactic as well because it's supposed to be unlimited debate time. But most of the time with the filibuster, they're just saying whatever to waste time. Um, I know one of the most recent examples, what was it, Ted Cruz reading Dr. Seuss on the Senate floor to to to, to kill time. Uh, another senator, I can't remember the guy's name, but he just read out of the Chicago phone book for you know, several hours just to, just to, you know, you're just trying to break the will of the other side. It's like, fine, if we can't vote on this, we'll just, we'll just put a hold on it until we can, you know, come to a better understanding or, or maybe come to a better resolution of, of, of what to do. Um, so, so yeah. Yeah. Ultimately the filibuster often been, oftentimes been used, uh, to kill bills. And a lot of the bills that have been killed by the filibuster or, or severely set back by the filibuster, uh, historically have been like civil rights bills. The Civil Rights Act in 57, um, one of the notable things about it is that is the longest ever filibuster held by U.S. Senator uh, Strom Thurmond, who spoke for over 24 hours to try to kill you know, civil rights legislation. So it's it's really kind of a mixed bag. It it is a tool of the minority party to get the chamber to reconsider, you know, voting on a bill. But oftentimes it comes as just a tactic to not really move debate forward in a, you know, in a productive way. It's oftentimes just meant to kind of a war of attrition, get the other side to give up. Moving on, we're, we we need to talk about what the powers of the Congress are. All right, because through through this series, we're going to talk about each branch of government and we need to outline, you know, what is their duties um, in this new government. So uh, the, the powers of the Congress come from Article one, Section eight. And uh, a lot of the, the powers are, are things that, you know, the states controlled during the Articles Confederation period. So 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 what are the some of the things that the, the, the federal government or the legislative branch is going to get to control? For starters, they're going to be able to coin their own money. They are going to be able to to collect taxes, something that they, again, were not allowed to do during the Articles and Federation period. They are going to get to sign treaties um, and negotiate the ends of, uh, of, of conflicts. They also are the, going to be the body that is going to be allowed to declare war on other nations. Uh, one of the important ones uh, that we, we talk about is uh, one of the checks and balance powers. They, they are going to uh, do the impeachment process. And we'll get a little bit more into the impeachment process, you know, when we talk about the difference between the House and the Senate duties, which Crowder is going to talk about. And a few other really important clauses of the Constitution is the Commerce Clause. The Commerce Clause was initially designed that the Senate and House representatives were able to regulate trade, whether it be foreign or domestic. But under Gibbons versus Ogden, the Supreme Court effectively uh, said that commerce can include virtually any interstate business. In terms of powers of the House versus powers of the Senate, also coming down to the design of the bodies themselves, the House is designed to be quick, more, uh, you know, answerable to the people, so to speak. Uh, and so any 
legislation dealing with taxes or revenue has to originate in the House. You know, they have the exclusive role of starting off, you know, any type of tax or revenue type bill so that ultimately, look, if, if people hate it, you can vote every single member out in the next election cycle. You know, all 435 House members today are up for re-election every other year. And so ultimately, if they pass something that's unpopular to you, you could get rid of them. The Senate would take, you know, many, many different election cycles if you wanted to vote everybody out, so to speak, and start over. One of the other powers that's unique to the House of Representatives is the power to impeach the president or any senior official within the government. And that that can include uh, Supreme Court justices. Uh, But we usually see it in terms of talking about the president of the United States. And the way the House acts in this case is the House kind of acts like a grand jury. Uh, They hear evidence relating to, you know, the supposed high crimes or misdemeanors is the word that you need to know, the phrase you need to know. They hear evidence, listen to witness, expert testimony, and are able to decide whether or not to impeach uh, senior officials in the federal government. And what that means, just like a grand jury, basically you're saying that you know, there's something there, there, there's enough compelling evidence to say that you potentially, you know, committed a high crime uh, or, or misdemeanor as, as the phrase says, and ultimately the power to impeach the president or impeach a uh, Supreme court justice or whoever it might be lies with the house, but the power to, you know, hear that trial and ultimately choose to remove or not remove an official from office lies with the Senate. You know, talking about the Senate, yes, they do have the opportunity to, as a check and balance, remove officials from other branches of government from office if they have committed crimes and they find as such. But the Senate especially has a couple of really big roles as it relates to the executive branch. You know, the phrase is advise and consent. The Senate has a job of basically advising the president and allowing the executive branch to take certain actions, um, name certain people to cabinet positions or ambassadorships, uh, and so on and so forth. So ultimately, you know, the Senate serves as a major check on the executive branch in this circumstance because they get to, you know, see who your picks are for, you know, Supreme Court justice or, you know, Secretary of Transportation and ultimately, you know, approve or not approve of the president's picks in those positions. And the last thing that the Senate has the power to do is ratifying treaties. Now, treaties can be negotiated by the executive branch, but ultimately they have to be approved by the Senate. A really good example of where this did not work out quite so well is the Treaty of Versailles at the end of World War I. And at the end of World War I, Woodrow Wilson the president of the United States really wants to include his 14 point plan for peace in Europe. And one of the most important parts of the 14 point plan for Woodrow Wilson was the creation of what's known as the league of nations, which is essentially a cooperation uh, between nations, not terribly dissimilar from the United nations that we have today. But when he took the signed treaty of Versailles back to the U S Senate, it was rejected. The senators who largely were of the opposite party of Woodrow Wilson wanted to really kind of 
isolate after the First World War. It really wanted to draw back from worldwide politics. And the last thing they wanted to agree to was this cooperation where they had to actively, you know, work with, make agreements with, you know, get approval from perhaps uh, other countries. And so the Treaty of Versailles, as famous as it is for other reasons, you know, famously for the United States, included a really important idea from Woodrow Wilson that ultimately leads to its own demise in the ratification process here at home. And as a result, the United States has to individually go around to these countries and negotiate their own peace terms. Yeah, the the Senate is very important. I, I do like the uh, the examples you gave, especially you know talking about checks and balances with the approval of of people. It's almost like a job interview. You go in, you have to prove to the Senate that you can do your job and that you're the best person for the job before you ever get the job. You just president just say, hey, I want my I'm president. I want Crowder to be my Secretary of State. No, thank he has you, thank, to. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. Crowder would be a great Secretary of State, guys. Um, he has to go in and basically plead with the Senate of why he would be great to be Secretary of State. I, I, I do as a very good, you know, thing that that the Senate has to do. Yeah, and it's important to note as well with the in advise and consent rule, is a lot of it depends entirely on who your party is. You know, if you have a divided government, what's the likelihood of getting your Supreme Court justice passed or your ambassador passed or, you know, naming your secretary of state? Yeah, yeah, it'd be not, really not, hard. Not, not as good. If yeah. they are a members of your own party, it doesn't always happen this way, but it usually does, especially if it's, you know, your first administration, you're coming in on a big wave of similar party votes and stuff like that, you know, uh, you might get a whole bunch of rubber stamps early on. Like, yep, this is cool. Yep, keep going. Good job. They're they're approved. They're approved. They're approved. But you know, with divided government, where you know, let's say there's a Democratic president and there's a Republican Senate, or or vice versa, becomes much more tricky to get those um, appointments passed through. Yeah, and you've seen that over the last few years, especially with uh, Supreme Court justices. Absolutely. Yeah. The the number of we're going to get to this, of course talk about you know cloture the judicial yeah the judicial, judicial branch well. and talk about you know filibuster and cloture and things of that sort but like you know democrats pulled the nuclear option as it's so-called back in um the obama administration to get federal judges named to you know the these vacant positions it used to be required that you had to have 60 votes um and, and you know right or wrong the republicans really kind of log jammed all of Obama's picks and he wasn't able to get anything passed in anyone named into these offices. And so it was Harry Reid, who was the Senate leader at the time, decided to change the rules and reduce the number of votes required for federal judges from 60 to a simple majority. And that's where, where it is today. You know, if you want a Supreme Court justice, all you really need to do is control the Senate and the presidency. And, you know, 51 votes is enough. 51 is easy compared to 60 or two-thirds. Absolutely. All right, speaking of getting things passed, we're going to move on to talking about um, 
one of our favorite topics, and and Crowder may start singing. I don't know, um, but we're gonna talk I'm about. I'm just a bill. <laughs> yes, I'm only a bill, and I'm sitting here on Capitol Hill. It's been oh oh sorry, I lose <laughs> myself in the music the moment you want it. You're never gonna let it go. Schoolhouse Rock is life, folks. You know, you know, yeah. football is life, and and Ted Lasso, but but uh, here in government, um, Schoolhouse Rock is. His life. Yeah. So we're going to talk about the, the the bill making process because primarily that's the most important duty that the, the legislative branch does on a day to day basis. They they are the ones that creates uh, new bills and tries to get them to be passed into law, um, so that you know you know society becomes better. You know, so, so go ahead. So they're not making these these bills or these laws to to make our lives awful. You know, they're all about all the time trying to improve society and make society better. Yeah, and Hertzer and I are going to guide you through this wilderness expedition. Uh, with each stage of the bill-making process, we'll talk about what happens if the bill does not get approved or if the bill moves on. Yeah, so, so the first step uh, for the bill-making process is the bill has to be created. And a bill's idea can come from anywhere. Um, it can come from me. It could come from Crowder. It could come from you guys um, sitting at home when, you know, when you, you start caring about society around you, you, all you have to do is call up your local, you know, Senator or your house representative member um, and, and suggest something to them. And if it's a, it's a good enough idea, they may present it to the house or the Senate floor um, where it will be, you know, basically approved or green lighted to, to be, you know, set off in motion. Right, step one, run. the bill is created. Yeah, step one is the bill is created. Um, so it's important to know a bill can start anywhere. Um, it can start in the House and the Senate, except for, you know, drum roll, tax and revenue bills. Tax and revenue bills can only start in one place, and that is the House, as Crowder mentioned earlier with the difference um, between the House and the Senate. Revenue bills has to start there, but any other bill can start anywhere. And it's also important to know that a bill can only be introduced by a member of Congress. It cannot be introduced by the president. It cannot be introduced by a, a lobby group. It has to be introduced by someone that is actually a part of the 535 in Congress. Yeah, correct. Um, you know, so it has to originate from a House member or a senator. And from there, what happens? Does it go right to the House or the Senate or or what? Uh, no, it's not actually. It's it's gonna go into well, it, it does go there, but it has to be you know filtered. You know, like you know, good coffee has to be filtered. Um, so it's gonna go uh, to one of the many committees um, that are uh, a part of the House and the Senate. It's gonna go to a standing committee. You know, first and foremost. Um, hopefully, you remember a standing committee is a committee that is always you know, there, um, it, it usually has some type of category assigned to it. Uh, for example, we're going to go to the House. We're going to talk about the House Ways and Means Committee. If the bill deals with taxes and revenue, it is going to go to the House Ways and Means Committee, where they are going to discuss and negotiate. And like I said, they're going to filter through the good ideas and bad ideas, and they ultimately have to approve or, or you know, you know, disprove the law before it ever gets to the House floor. It, it could be pigeonholed for all we, we know. 
Yeah, so so ultimately, you know, this shouldn't be mind-blowing to anybody, but when the bill's introduced, it, it goes to a committee, but the committee is going to be a relevant committee. You know, if it's an education bill, you're not going to send it to the Committee on Energy and Commerce, you know. Right. It's going to go to a, a related uh, committee. And so step two, it goes to committee. What happens in committee, Herzler? Like I said, this is, again, this is where the bill is filtered through. So basically, this is a smaller you know, sample size of the House where the bill is discussed and debated on. They might hear testimony from people who have a a stake in the bill. They might collect data on, you know, how, you know, the bill would affect society. Uh, and then they will start drafting um, how the bill is going to be worded. Uh, you know, what what do they want to achieve with the bill? And then they'll end up starting to to mark up and really, you know, define what the bill is going going to be um, when they send it to the House floor. Okay, so the bill is written in the committee. It's formalized. It's ready to go. What happens if the committee doesn't like it? Well, if the committee doesn't like it, they can do several things. Uh, I, I already mentioned it once. Um, they can pigeonhole a bill where the bill is basically just set aside and you don't really hear from the bill ever again. Rest in peace, Bill. Yep, this is this is how a bill can can be killed, and um, the mo- and the most common way at that. Yeah, this is yep. where most bills go to die. You know, they they do not get out of what's known as getting out of committee. Uh, most bills do not get past this point. If you remember the Schoolhouse Rock video, he says that if they don't report favorable on him, he might die. So if 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 the committee does not feel like it's important that this bill ever sees the light of day again, then the bill won't. And and look, we're not just being dramatic people. I mean, yeah, sometimes we are, but you know, <laughs> it, it's good. It's good for fifteen and sixteen year olds. Uh, ultimately, you know, this is what this is what's called. It's it's called you know the bill dies. It's it's we're not just using dramatic language. If it's pigeonholed, if it's set aside, or if the if it's voted down, it's pretty much dead. There is one thing that you can do to get a bill out of a committee that disapproves of it, and it's called a discharge petition. Uh, But ultimately, with the way that committees are set up by the majority party of of Congress, if it doesn't get out of the majority of voters in that committee, it's probably not going to go anywhere in the overall chamber of the House or Senate either. Yeah, and then basically you look at it, if the bill suggested by the minority party, those are the bills that are normally, you know, killed off. And it's good. Yeah, it's going to have a, be a lot harder of a road uh, to get to passage. Let's just pretend. Let's be a little bit more optimistic here. Okay. This We've bill had, is a success, right? This bill is a success. He's just going like places. just like all of these listeners going places. <laughs> uh, so, step three. All right, step three. So, so we voted in our committee. The committee approves our bill. Um, whatever house we're in, the bill will then go to the house floor. And here they'll have um, some debate. Uh, so let's say we're in the House. Let's stay, let's stick with the House. Um, first of all, the bill has to go uh, to the House Rules Committee where they will decide how long this bill should be debated on. Because remember, the House does not have unlimited debate time. I think they have a max of an hour per bill. Um, but the House Rules Committee decides within that hour how long that bill deserves to be talked about. So we'll have some discussion in the House. And then finally, we'll vote. We'll have a, a, a full vote. Can we do anything to the bill? Because it can it change at all? Yeah, the bill can change a little bit. They can add, um, what is it, riders to the bill. 
suggestions that may or may not help the bill. Um, I talk about this in class all the time. Sometimes bills get way too large um, where they're just sticking riders on that may have nothing to do with what the bill is even about. Um, I can't remember what that term's called. You omnibus bill. There we go. Sounds like a sounds like a, a transformer. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Of all the alien creatures in the galaxy, they still go by Bill. <laughs> um, but yeah, you can add riders to the bill through discussion before it's voted on. Like I said, sometimes these riders are great. Sometimes they have nothing to do with what the bill's about. They're just but, trying to get things passed. But one important difference between the House and the Senate is is based on House rules currently. Um, all riders added to the bill in the House have to be what's called germane. They have to be relevant uh, to the topic of discussion. So ultimately, like, if you're passing an education bill, you can't suddenly say, we want to open up oil drilling in Texas. You know, it, that's something that could not be added on under, under current House rules. Uh, now in the Senate, different issue. The Senate, you can add any number of random, unrelated riders uh, it's called pork legislation, pork barrel legislation, uh, and a lot of people aren't a huge fan of it. But, you know, it's one way to get votes from senators who are a little indifferent, like, uh, you know, Hertzler may not care this, that or the other about a certain bill. But if you give him, you know, the opportunity to open up a new golf course in Taylorsville, he'd be like, oh, yeah, I'll, I'll I'd vote, vote for that. I'll, I'd vote for this bill. Who cares what it's about? Right. Um, and so let's just say. It gets through the House. There are a few that are germane riders that are added to it. What happens next? Well, as long as it passes to the House, then it goes directly to the Senate. All and right. what happens if it doesn't pass the House? Then it dies. Mm. But if it if it does, we're, we're still optimistic. About oh, yeah. Still, guys. Optimistic. We're, we're still optimistic. optimistic. Yeah. It's, 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 it's going places. So it's going to go to the Senate, and they're going to vote on it. All right? The Senate. The Senate. Is. The Senate and the House have to pass the exact same version of the bill. That's the key here. Um, oftentimes, you know, it goes from one chamber to the other, and people start changing it significantly from one thing or another. Or in some cases, you know, the House and the Senate start working on two different versions of the same bill. Yeah. You know, or it's it's trying to do the same thing, but, you know, two different chambers are working on the same thing. Uh, and so oftentimes, you know, the ideas really marry together well and the ideas, you know, jive and coordinate. But oftentimes they're very different from one chamber to the next. And if that happens, again, it has to go to a joint committee where you have members of the House and Senate come together to reconcile that bill, try to get it on the same page, try to get the wording exactly the same in a way that would be approved by both chambers once again. So after it leaves joint committee, it would go back to the House to, for approval and back to the Senate for approval. Um, the the debates changed a little bit in this case. It's supposed to be really kind of like, uh, you know, very short, very to the point. You know, you're not allowed to add anything to it in this case if it's come out of a joint committee. Uh, and, and then at that point in time, it would go beyond. Correct. Uh, so so we passed the House and we passed the Senate at this point? No yeah. filibusters? Let's let, you know, let's let's. No, mm. uh, I'm not sure if there are enough votes in the in the Senate to get this bill approved. What what could happen? Well, then again, it could die if it doesn't get a, oh. you know, approval. It's it's gonna die off, and and you know our bill, our 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 sad journey for this bill has come to an end. Um, but again, we are optimists in this class. Yeah. This this bill is gonna get passed, right? 
Yeah, they, they, this is like watching Lord of the Rings and you're deep into the two towers and you're like, this is not going well. We, you know? we, we are not going to survive the night. But there's some good in this world, Mr. Frodo, and it's right. worth fighting for because we are going to get past the Senate. You know, if there is debate on it, which there's going to be debate in the Senate, uh, the senators can vote to end the debate. Uh, voting to end debate on a bill can be called by a simple, you know, kind of a yay or nay type vote, or it can be a individual roll call of uh, a votes of what's known as cloture. And in cloture, basically it's a decision that we are going to end debate and move forward with choosing whether or not to support this bill. Okay, so ultimately cloture requires 60 votes, and it is one way that you can end debate and the filibuster at that. So just to review, it's been proposed. It's gone to a committee in the House. It's been approved. It's gone to the full House. It's been changed a little bit, perhaps. But it it's, still gets approved. But it gets approved. It's gone to the Senate. It gets changed, perhaps. But it gets approved in the Senate. It goes back to the a joint committee now that have to make the bills exactly the same. The joint committee comes out with a bill that it is approved in the House and approved in the Senate. We are off to see the president. Ooh. Do, 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 All right. So, so, this, so we are now if, on the president's desk, right? Ooh, so nice. So, I like, so I now like this the president. The, yeah, the president has several options he can do. The first is and the the first and the easiest that the president can do, if he likes the bill that comes out of the legislative branch, he has the option to sign it into law. And yeah. our bill has completed his journey. But however, oh. he hasn't picked up his pen yet what? because he also has the option to veto the bill. Oh. If he doesn't like the bill, let's say we have a split government. Let's say we have a Republican Congress but a Democratic president. And he doesn't like the bill that the Republican Congress created. He can veto that bill, and the bill dies. Right? Right? Maybe, the bill dies. Right? Maybe. Maybe we'll see in a minute. The third thing that he can do, and it's it's quite rare that this happens. He can use what is known as the pocket veto, which is it's it's a weird weird rule, but but we've seen this be used throughout history, um, uh, starting with Abraham Lincoln. I think he's the the originator of the pocket veto, but. Uh, if, I, if I'm wrong, I'm sorry. I didn't mean it. Um, but the POC veto is where the president will let – if the president let this bill sits normally for 10 days and Congress is in session, the bill becomes a law. Yeah. The president can't do anything at that point. It's, but it's, that, that's one creative way that president can essentially show disapproval of the bill while still allowing it to become law. Yeah, I'm not going to sign it, but hey, well, you know, you never know. Oh, man, it became law. Darn. <laughs> oh, no. Um so if the bill, if the president doesn't want to sign the bill and he doesn't want to send it back to Congress, then the president uh, can let the bill sit um, on his desk and it, the bill die, especially if Congress isn't in session. If Congress is adjourned like it is about to be in the next few weeks uh, when they uh, adjourn for the new Congress coming in, then the bill just dies. It, it disappears. He sticks it in his pocket, and we never hear from it again. Yeah, it just, sounds like I, a. <laughs> I, I like to think of it. it's like a it's like a third grader who like you give a permission slip to go on a trip. They put it in their pocket. You'll never see it again. Or their book bag. Yeah. Or their desk. <laughs> yeah. Ooh, yeah. No, but it, or it's my a desk. similar it's a similar idea. You essentially like you hide it away. You never think of it again. Nothing happens with it. Yep. Yep. So we've pretty much covered everything, but there's let's one say this bill gets vetoed. Really important and rare occasion the bill gets vetoed 
But the Congress that sent the president this bill is just a diehard fan of this and want to see it succeed. Is there any path forward for young Bill? Why, yes, there is. So Congress still has the ability to make this. If the president doesn't want to make this bill a law, Congress still has the ability to do that. They can call uh, for a veto override vote. Um, You need all of Congress to vote on the veto, um, but you need 67 percent or two thirds of a Congress vote. So, so all Congress people, House and Senate, will vote on the 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 veto override, and you need a two thirds approval from that body to get that bill to become a law. So this bill made it. It it took the hard road. It got vetoed. Congress had to override that veto, but they, we got two thirds, and we're a law now. So this this bill, this little bill, has made it. That's right. Just like you guys, you are You'll going make, to make it, even though it seems like you know. There's bad things at every turn. You'll make it. Yes, we are here. We we are here to show you the light. Inspir- are you inspired yet? I'm ready. Um, <laughs> let's talk about everyone's favorite part. <laughs> let's talk about everyone's favorite part of politics: political parties. I had uh, some sarcasm there. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I'm just glad the commercials are over. We have about three weeks until we get a new round of commercials for the 2024 election. Um, start them early, start them early, but long story short, we should know, and this isn't anything that's mind blowing that we have divided political parties here in America. You know, there are a whole plethora of parties. But the two major parties that realistically have any chance of winning major offices are the Democratic Party and the Republican Party. The way in which these parties divide themselves uh, and the way in which Congress people divide themselves uh, are known as caucuses. A caucus is a political group which vote together based on some type of similar interest. In many cases, on the most basic level, we're talking about, you know, Democrats caucus together, Republicans caucus together. Uh, But there are more caucuses outside of that. You know, there is uh, famously the Congressional Black Caucus, which is made up of African-American members of Congress. Tea Party Caucus uh, started in, you know, the Obama administration roundabout uh, with, you know, very conservative members of Congress. You know, but you have people who vote and meet and talk legislation with, you know, similar interests in energy or agriculture, uh, things like that. But you also have the whole political parties basically caucusing, you know, separately as well. Uh, and, And in terms of how that influences legislation, it really depends on elections and who wins elections. Um, you know, as we mentioned before, any member of Congress, be it House or Senate, can introduce pretty much any legislation that they choose. And it has to go to a relevant committee. But oftentimes, the nitty-gritty of writing uh, legislation starts in caucuses and and in committees. You know, if the Congressional Black Caucus wants to create legislation that favors African Americans in some form or fashion, you know, they may work together to write a bill. Uh, or agriculture bills are often written in caucuses that meet for agriculture and so on and so forth. At, at the largest level, caucuses are ways in which you can kind of group together with senators of similar interest and work toward 
setting out some type of legislative agenda. So the way that works in Congress is, you know, when you have two political parties that caucus separately, right now, for example, in the 117th Congress, the Democrats have control of both the House and the Senate. The 118th Congress looks like it's going to be a little different. Uh, it seems like the Democrats are going to be able to hold on to the Senate, but the Republicans look very likely to be able to take the House. Uh, based on who's in the majority of each party, they control a, a significant amount of what type of legislation is introduced, um, you know, the type of laws that are created in the coming years, how much gridlock there's going to be between the chambers of Congress and or the you know, gridlock between the divided government of the legislative branch and the White House. Um, so, you know, these these divisions, which aren't written into the Constitution in any form or fashion, uh, do play a large role in creating legislation and policy for the government. It's also going to play a huge role in who is in, in charge of these bodies, um, because, you know, th these groups aren't just you know, they're on their own. They, they do have the, a leadership structure that keeps the day-to-day -day duties in line and, and what, you know, is expected of them. Um, so so we have two very important people, um, both being the leader of the House and the leader of the Senate. We're going to start with the leader of the House, um, and that is the Speaker of the House. Um, the Speaker of the House, like Crowder was just talking about, is selected by the majority party. Obviously, it's basically... A, a vote by everybody in Congress, but it's a waste of time. Basically, the party that has a majority is going to get their Speaker of the House in. Right now, that Speaker of the House is Nancy Pelosi. Um, she is a Democrat because, as Crowder mentioned just a second ago, the Democrats control the House. The President Pro Temp, Tempro is the the leader of the, the Senate when the Vice President is away um, because constitutionally the Vice President is in charge of the Senate. But, you know, the vice president has other duties he has to, to do on a daily basis. So so there is a, a a leader, a speaker of the House, but but called a different term. And it's basically appointed the same way. The majority in the Senate will select the president pro tem and put, put them in charge right now. Again, that's also the, the Democrats in the Senate. I can't remember that guy's name. Uh, who is that guy in the Senate, Crowder? The president pro tem of the Senate is Patrick Leahy. And fun fact about Patrick Leahy, he has been in no less than five Batman movies. He's a huge Batman fan, right? Yeah. If if you watch The Dark Knight, uh, Patrick Leahy is the person who stands up to Heath Ledger at that party. And he goes, we're not putting up with you thugs or something like that. And, you know, Heath Ledger's Joker nearly kills him. But, you know, that would have been straight up assassination because he is the president pro tem. He is, you know, uh, pretty close in line to the presidency himself when you're talking about, you know, behind vice president, speaker of the house, and then it would be president pro tem. Yeah. He's so he's third in line after the yeah. president passes away. Yeah. Interesting. All right. Some other important leadership roles in both the house and the Senate, they both have these roles. You have the majority and minority leaders. So the majority leaders are the majority party. The minority leaders are the minority party, and and that's the the party that has less and the party that has more. Just make sure we're we're clear of what the majority minority parties are. Basically, the majority minority leaders they are the the heads uh, of those parties on a day to day basis. They're the ones that lead debates amongst their their party. Uh, they're it's like a group project. They are the, the they're the one assigning you know the roles of their party on a day to day basis. And then you have another important group called the majority and minority whips. 
Um, it's always fun to talk about these guys. These are the the, the individuals that that keep the the party members in line. And what I mean in line when it comes to voting, right? So so they're the ones that go out. Um, they they have to keep track of how a vote's going to go for their particular party. They will have a good idea of the vote before votes are even cast. And sometimes they're tasked with even trying to gain more votes for their party. Yeah, it's um <laughs> maybe not the most popular opinion to take in, in comparing Congress to organized crime, but you know the whips would be like <laughs> the whips would be like the muscle. They're the ones who really go out there to try to like you know we're we're gonna say rough up, but in a really like not there no one's no physical altercations, right? We get to use one but, of my favorite terms too, log rolling. Um, yeah, trading uh, votes on a bill for another. For support on other bills. Yeah, so they're, they're tasked with not roughing up, but they do go out. They try to, uh, to to gain support for a bill to try to get more votes. Yeah, yeah, it's all it's all about keeping your party in line and perhaps trying to get support, bipartisan support. You know, bipartisan support's, you know, a little bit more and more rare these days, but it does happen now and again. And a lot of it is due to the works of these uh, majority and minority whips. So Hertzler, let's say a state drastically changes in size over time, you know, population-wise. You know, a lot of people move in or out of a state. Are are they forever bound to the same number of representatives? Why no, Crowder? They are not because Ooh, thank thanks you. to a provision in the Constitution, we have to have a census every 10 years. So so we just had one actually in 2020 where, where we count the individuals in the, the country. We take a look at demographics from state to state, and if we feel like a state needs or uh, needs a more, uh, more Senate, uh, House rep members, or they they have, let's say they've lost a population over time and need to lose a couple of House seats, um, they do that as well. So so yeah, we do we will have adjustments to the House seats, and we'll also have you know changes in the states themselves um, when they 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 redistrict. Uh, voting districts based on how even population moves amongst the states. Yeah, and, and and in 1929, Congress passed the Permanent Apportionment Act. Uh, and what that means is the number of House members that exist uh, from that point forward, 1929 forward, is 435 seats. So every single census based on the states that have gained or lost, you know, large numbers of their population, they may gain or lose congressional seats. So you basically have to take all 435 seats and divvy them up amongst the states based on the population of those states. So, you know, the most populous state currently, which is California, has the most number of House members versus small states, Wyoming, Alaska, uh, Hawaii, so on and so forth. They Delaware. have, yeah, they have, they have simply one House member because every state must have at least one. Uh, but the, otherwise, it's based entirely on population. It's it is cool how we have to keep four thirty five. Like North Carolina, we just gained a, a house seat. I think we've already mentioned that. Um, California, I think, lost three uh, house seats in the last census, and uh, Texas even picked. Texas is growing again, so I think Texas picked up one or two. I, I can't remember the numbers right off the top of my head. Yeah, it just it just goes to show that the census. Um, and and the the whole reallocation process, uh, apportionment process rather, is all about trying to keep some semblance of, you know, representation being generally proportional to population. 
Uh, and, and so every single year that a census is done, you know, this data is sent to state legislatures to ultimately draw congressional districts. And it's important to note that generally speaking, state legislatures are the ones that choose both the state level and the federal level congressional districts. This is one important idea related to federalism we didn't quite discuss last class, but perhaps it's some level of check that the state has on the national government. You know, based on how they draw these districts, they very much have a large role in deciding what political leanings, what political parties are sent to Washington, D.C. In some cases, state legislatures are going to exploit this idea. And that's one thing that we're going to talk about in just a minute. I'm going to keep you on the edge of your seat. Wait, wait, it's, what you mean is this isn't a smooth process? Well, it's politics. <laughs> Not every single state legislature draws their congressional districts. This is one important thing that I do want to point out. In fact, Arizona, California, Colorado, Idaho, Michigan, New York, and Washington all draw their state and federal districts using an independent commission. And these independent commissions are made up of people who cannot directly have come out of government. They have to be basically away from the political process for a certain period of time. Uh, and so the goal of this is to try to draw these districts very fairly. Because as we mentioned before, congressional districts are meant to have about 750,000 people in them. But what we didn't say is that in oftentimes for the state legislatures, they get to choose which 750,000 people are included in a congressional district. And this is the process known as redistricting. You know, every single time that a district is drawn based on the new census data, you have redistricted. And not all redistricting is bad. I don't want to misrepresent that idea. Re redistricting is an important process. It's necessary. It, it, it's, it's an absolutely necessary process uh, that has to happen every 10 years. And in fact, states have gotten in trouble for it before by not redistricting. So, so as Crowder alluded to, it is important to redistrict. And we do have a very important court case that deals with this very issue, Baker v. Carr where Tennessee um, had not redistrict in a long time. 1901 was the last time they redistrict. And, and Baker v. Carr, I think the, the final decision was, was concluded in 1962. Started, yeah. was filed yeah. in 1959, concluded in 1962. So, yeah, so 50-some years that they have not redistrict in their state. And, and that was the question. You know, you know, could the federal government, you know, enforce that, that states – redistrict properly um and that's the that's the major decision that they're they are are fighting over um in this court case yeah the important idea is and we have to kind of like close our eyes and imagine this a little bit but think of how population is going to grow over 50 plus years you know they redistrict in 1901 and then they don't redistrict again for you know 1920 1930 1940 1950 we're talking several census cycles at this point in time you know, and you how's the baby the boom going on in there? Yeah. How has the population changed since then? The major issue that comes up in Baker v. Carr is that urban areas had disproportionately been underrepresented by these census counts because they're still going on data from 1901. You know, if a city has 5,000 people in 1901 and the outside rural areas have 1,000, and then you fast forward nearly 50 years and 
you know, the city's grown to 25,000 people and the rural areas maybe grown to 2000 people. They still have the same amount of representation, even though the city has grown so much quicker. And so Baker, who was actually the mayor of one of these urban areas in Tennessee, filed a lawsuit against Carr, who was the secretary of state for Tennessee, saying that basically Tennessee's refusal to redistrict had led to a violation of the 14th Amendment, this idea of the Equal Protection Clause, in that Baker's right to representation had been damaged because of the fact that Tennessee had not redrawn congressional districts to reflect that cities are now larger than they used to be. I think the original wording was Baker's votes were diluted, he felt yeah. like. Yeah, yeah. This issue, as, as you kind of alluded to before, is this what becomes a Supreme Court case had a lot of trouble getting off the crown because judiciary around the country had a lot of hesitance in ruling in these cases. Because it's a federalism issue. Yeah. The judicial branch doesn't like to step on toes, especially of other branches of government. They have this whole idea of whether or not it's a political question or not. And that that idea of a quote-unquote political question is a major driving force in a lot of you know, court decisions across the country, Maybe not even Supreme Court alone. The Supreme Court doesn't want to give get involved in political issues. They don't want to get thrown into, you know, Republican versus Democrat, this, that, and the other. They they want to aim uh, to try to be above that. So in many cases, courts didn't even want to take this up because it was a, it was a sticky issue with this political question of whether or not making a state redistrict is inherently political in nature. And what Baker versus Carr ruled is that it was something that was uh, justiciable. Uh, and justiciable simply means that it's something that the Supreme Court can hear, uh, something that's not political in nature. Yeah, because it violates an amendment. That's the big thing. It violates the 14th Amendment, the equal protection of 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 representation. So so that's where it comes to being a, you know, you know, something the Supreme Court can get its hands on and and, and fix. Yeah, so the, the two important things coming out of this case, and it was I think it was a 6-2 decision, the Supreme Court ruled that, one, it was a justiciable issue, meaning that, you know, because, as you said, someone's actual 14th Amendment Equal Protection Clause rights had been damaged by these laws, it was something they could rule on. Uh, and the, uh, the other issue itself was, you know, the fact that redistricting is something that has to happen or it does hurt their, rep their right to representation and therefore, you know, break through equal protection clause in the 14th Amendment. So, so again, re <laughs> recap, redistricting must happen. Yeah. And while we're on the topic of redistricting, I, I do want to mention, as I kind of did before, not all redistricting is necessarily bad. You know, redistricting is necessary and important. But there is some redistricting that starts to get a little sketchy. And the special word for that is called gerrymandering. And where does gerrymandering come from, Crowder? Gerrymandering comes from an old uh, U.S. politician named Elbridge Gerry. Uh, and, and famously, Elbridge Gerry drew or was directly benefiting from a con a congressional district, which was drawn oddly in the shape of what's called a salad, you know, a salamander. Uh, and so, you know, this whole term of gerrymandering is tied to this guy, Elbridge Jerry, uh, who 
arguably was the first to benefit from these strangely drawn congressional districts, which uh, disproportionately favored either one party or one group over another. And that's the key difference between gerrymandering and redistricting. Redistricting, again, necessary, has to happen. It's good. Gerrymandering is when you draw districts in a way that are going to disproportionately favor one group or one political party over another. And Hertzler, if I were to want to gerrymander, I'm not saying, but, you know, let's say asking for a friend, you know, if I wanted to gerrymander, what are some ways that I could go about doing it? Well, there are two very specific, you know, tactics that people who gerrymander um, try to use. The first one is called uh, packing. Um, this is where you look at voting, your voting data. And let's let's look at a state um, we're, we're back to me looking like a state, but I'm going to be North Carolina this time because it's our home state. That's where you look at the voting data and you try basically to disperse your party as much as you can and pack all of the opposing party into one voting district to where they will get a, a representative, but it's only in one area. So let's say we have seven districts. My job is to make sure that we have one voting district that is strictly one party and the other six are going to favor my party. So that way yeah. we go seven or we go six, one and, and, and I have all the control. Yeah. It's, it's the idea of trying to put as many similar voters into one area as possible or, or as few areas as possible. Let's say, you know, it's really tough. You might give up two districts, but ultimately you still have a huge disproportionately representation uh, when, when you pack a district full of voters that are, you know, the opposite this district, of your party. Yeah. Opposite of this party. This district's going to go, you know, win by 88 points in this election, uh, but they only win the one district. Yeah. It's kind of like when, when I know nobody's at this point yet, but, you know, when you're planning your your wedding, you know, seat, you, you put all the people that nobody wants to sit with at one party, at one table, so so that they, they don't, you know, say anything embarrassing or, or, or do anything embarrassing at your wedding. Yeah. Yeah. Table 12, it's 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 usually table 12, and you put them in the corner with, yeah, the, away with, from, the, with the weird aunts and uncles that you don't really, uh, you know, you have to invite out of, like, just family loyalty, but, you know, <laughs> that that's it. All right, the, the, next, the next tactic is known as cracking. So we got packing, and we got cracking. Cracking is the opposite. Cracking is where you look at, at large districts of your opponents, and you want to split them up, and you split them into small groups amongst your party and you try to limit their control as much as possible. So if we're looking at data related to cracking, you know, I'm going to go on general assumption that has been true in the last several years is large urban areas tend to be more heavily democratic and rural areas tend to be more heavily uh, Republican, right? So if you're using a cracking method in this, you might have three different congressional district cutting up that city so that, yes, there are lots of Democratic voters in those cities, but when you divide them into a third and you put them in part of a larger district where there are plenty of rural voters to dilute, work against their vote, you still win. Yeah, and it's so it's all about making sure that, that you use the voting data or you use the political data to your advantage to get your party in control. 
So yeah, you you either put them in one and you guarantee they're going to win that district or those two districts really hard, but that's about it. Or or cracking is you just dilute their vote by basically putting them into bigger districts that they have no chance. And you know, this sounds sketchy, Hertzler. Like, is this legal? I mean, yeah, th- that's is. the question. It's like you you feel like when you're when you're talking about this, you feel like this. You is, feel like you know, feel dirty. This, like you, yeah. you have you have to go take a shower. Like you're like this is okay though. Like uh, we talked about this with Baker versus Carr. Is you know so the Supreme Court and courts in general are really iffy about ruling on political issues. You know, uh, and and so partisan gerrymandering is is, is okay. It, it is frowned upon, but it's perfectly legal and. Another thing to know is it's everyone does it. Yeah, it's 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 not just one party over another. It it's both parties use this. I think we were talking about this the other day. It's it's like you know young people who play video games. If you find a glitch that makes you a better per- player at a video game, and everybody uses it, you're also going to use it. Yeah, I mean, you can argue at the end of the day, oh, it's not honorable thing to do and stuff like that. But you know full well that as soon as you lose power to the other party and they're going to do it, you know what? Why would you not? Uh, you know, I I don't love gerrymandering personally, and I'm sure you feel exactly the same way. But at the end of the day, you have to realize that this is a loophole that both political parties have and will continue to exploit until, you know, it falls enough out of favor with everybody that. I would say it has to probably get to the edge where it'd be like a, a constitutional amendment against it. And it, and it's tough too for us is where we live, right, Crowder? In researching for this this podcast and for this unit, you're watching a lot of documentaries and reading a lot of articles. And what state seems to come up the most when talking about gerrymandering? Yeah, it's uh, it's it's uh, it's North Carolina. You're watching, and you kind of like grit your teeth, like in the 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 really infamous Michael Scott gif. You know, you're like, oh, there we are again. Yeah, man, it's it's you know, and North Carolina is not the only one historically, but it's a really good recent example. It, of it's close to home. That's the big thing, and it, yeah. and it hits close to home absolutely. So yeah, quick recap: partisan gerrymandering is okay. It's been approved. Um, I, I guess you know. The courts courts won't touch it. So ultimately, like it's a practice that we don't like to necessarily admit to liking or or you know, oh, we'd never do that. But as we mentioned before, the party in power, if they have that advantage that they can draw congressional districts that favor them, they're absolutely going to do it. And so what's what's the impact of partisan gerrymandering? Well, the impact is you don't see much change you know, in, in the politics of the state. All right. Um, so like in North Carolina or, or the politics of the country or the politics of the country. And you technically have misrepresentation. For example, I'm going to use North Carolina because we've already brought it up. Uh, what was it? 2020. Uh, basically the vote was what? For 51% Republican, 48% Democrat when it came to voting. Um, That's the 2018 election was 50 to 48. Yeah. 50 to 48. Um, so you would think that in our 13 districts that we would have, you know, a split of of seven to six when it came to sending people to the House, but it wasn't. It was 10 Republican, three Democrat. Yeah. Which, again, if you look at the data, is a misrepresentation um, of how the vote 
voting win. Yeah, and you know that's an important idea to understand is is popular vote versus congressional district voting is, is very different. Uh, and the way that the maps have been drawn across the state and across the country tend to remove, you know, these questions of who is going to favor. Because if you also look at these election results, there are a bunch of really tightly contested uh, con sorry, congressional House seats. But more often than not, and, and it's become even more so in recent years, most of these congressional district elections are blowouts. You have one party winning by 20 points, 30 points, 40 points. Very few of the elections are decided by, you know, let's say five or fewer points. And so the impact of this is that you have what's known as safe seats and swing seats. And safe seats are seats that a Republican or a Democrat is going to win pretty much every single election regardless of what happens. You know, how unpopular the president is, how, you know, poorly or how well they're doing their job, right? Uh, people are going to vote for them because they have, you know, uh, the designation of being a Republican or the designation of being a Democrat. Uh, yeah, these that are, happens everywhere. That And that happens everywhere, absolutely. And these are safe seats that will not really change hands uh, unless something just catastrophic happens, right? But the other side of that is there are swing seats around the country. And the swing seats are where you have a district that is, you know, split with less than 5% uh, of a difference between, you know, one party or another. You know, it is up in the air every single election of what could happen with that district if you are a swing seat. But the issue is, as we have redrawn, you know, more and more precisely these congressional districts, fewer and fewer of them are swing seats and more and more of them are safe. Yeah, those districts are called purple districts because because you, you you don't know what party is going to control that district from time to time. So you don't have very many purple purple districts anymore. And so, what's the impact of this? What's 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 the big deal with having districts that are safe and very few districts that are you know swing seats? Well, you don't have to worry about making your constituents mad. Yeah, you, you can do whatever you want to at Congress because at the end of the day you're always going to get reelected. You know, they're worried about getting reelected, but if you're winning by 20 points every single election, you don't have to worry about how your constituents view you. And if you're in a heavily Democratic or a heavily Republican area, the only way you lose your seat is you choose to retire or you get primaried. You get beat and by another Democrat. Yeah, you get or another beat Republican. by and you get beat by somebody else in your party who perhaps in in most cases is way more extreme than you are much more catering to the base. The people who show up to primaries are the people who really care about their party, right? And so, you know, getting primaried is when you lose out more often to a more extreme, more radical uh, viewpoint within your own political persuasion. And so the impact of this is that Congress over the years has slowly become more and more polarized, more and more separate, moving farther away from the middle, Right. Because if anything, I would argue that swing seats are going to encourage moderation because you have to get votes from Democrats and Republicans to wings to win swing seats. But if you're in a safe seat, you just have to play to the base and, and oftentimes play to the worst ambitions of the base. Demonize the other party. Don't do anything that's going to benefit the other party or, or people who vote against you. You know, it's not in your interest because ultimately, at the end of the day, you know, you're going to win those seats. So political polarization in Congress has slowly become 
worse and worse over time as there are fewer and fewer swing seats and fewer and fewer moderate Republicans and, and Democrats. You know, it's interesting. We looked at trends the other day is, and, and uh, you know, congressmen and women don't really hang out anymore like they used to. You know, we, they used to talk about, you know, in that 70s and 80s, you know, you know, going out to dinner with one another after the, the work day is over. They don't even really live in Washington, D.C. anymore as well with how easy it is to travel around the country. In, in terms of a congressional schedule, uh, you know, this is wild to think about, but they come into town on, on Monday evening or Tuesday morning. They work from Tuesday to Thursday. They go home. That's that's the average week of a congressperson. You know, they come into Washington, they work three days, and they go back home to their district. You know, this has become even easier, as, as Hertzler pointed out, than it used to be because they get free airline travel. And you you don't have people going out to dinner. You don't have people, you know, getting a drink, whatever it might be, at the end of a busy work week because, you know, oh, we don't have time to go home or it's too expensive so, to go home. And, so that human connection that yeah. congressmen and women used to have with one another is gone. And they just see themselves as political enemies now. Yeah. And I would argue on the same page, I don't want to get too ahead of ourselves with this because we're going to discuss it later. But, you know, with with 24-hour news cycles and with social media, it seems even more important than ever that you are always on your game in being a partisan. Uh, this idea of of going out to dinner with a Democrat, if you're a Republican, you know, someone's going to take your picture, and all of a sudden you're 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 you know working with quote unquote the enemy. Then ads go up against you in your district, and you you get primaried, right? So this idea of just like working with people as human beings. Going out to dinner, you might have the worst type of vicious uh, verbal brawl on the Congress floor, but at the end of the day, you still treat each other as people, right. you know, and that that's something that we've lost a lot of the times because if you come to work on Tuesday and leave on Thursday and never really interact with the other side, it's much easier to demonize them and basically never interact with them, just pretend they're not really like people. So has there ever been a time where gerrymandering has been questioned. Absolutely. Uh, and it's, again, back to this issue of, of whether or not it's a, a political question or not. You know, we've mentioned before how partisan gerrymandering is perfectly okay because courts don't want to touch it. But in the case of racial gerrymandering, it's a whole other issue. And for our purposes, we're going to be looking at a major Supreme Court case from 1993, and that case is Shaw versus Reno. Once again, this is dealing with North Carolina. North Carolina was under a federal rule from the Voting Rights Act of 1965, in which, because of the fact that North Carolina had been one of several states that historically had had Jim Crow legislation that disproportionately kept Black Americans from voting, North Carolina and other Southern states had to submit any major changes to voting laws to the federal government to review and make sure that they weren't crossing any lines or hurting anybody's civil rights. And that's where we come into this case of Shaw versus Reno. When in the 1990 census, North Carolina was given the data and they drew congressional districts for the state. North Carolina sent this to the attorney general who at the time was Janet Reno to approve or not approve. She looked at the maps of the congressional districts of North Carolina and ruled that it was not adequate. What North Carolina had was a situation where they had drawn one majority-minority district, which is essentially, in this case, we're talking about districts that are predominantly black. And under this case of Shaw versus Reno, 
Janet Reno sent this proposed map back to North Carolina saying, you need to have at least two of these districts drawn uh, to represent a predominantly black electorate. And what happens is Shaw, who is a white voter, sued Janet Reno, saying that by purposefully drawing districts only based on race, it was hurting Shaw's equal protection clause of the 14th Amendment in, in, in a similar way to what we were talking about, Baker versus Carr. You're making districts that are only based on race. And so by doing that, you are taking away votes that could potentially be from white voters as well. And what happened is the court ruled in favor five to four. So very close split vote here. The court ruled in favor of Shaw saying that by drawing districts predominantly based on race, the state of North Carolina and ultimately Janet Reno, who is the attorney general for the federal government, were hurting the equal protection uh, clause of the 14th Amendment of white voters like Shaw in the state. And what the main decision of Shaw versus Reno is, is that race cannot be the main determinant when you're redrawing congressional districts. Again, with this idea of gerrymandering, the reason this is gerrymandering is because you're drawing districts specifically to, in, in this case, uh, help black voters. Uh, you know, you're you're trying to favor one specific group over another. So as long as you're doing it using voting data and political ideology, you're fine. But if you're using it solely with the idea of racial gerrymandering, it, it is illegal. So on this very last point, and, and back to the question that started this whole episode, why is Congress so hated? I personally think that Congress is so hated because... No matter what, you're always going to have people of the opposite party in Congress. And anything that doesn't go your way, you're always going to blame the opposite party in Congress. So there's always there's always a 50% hatred in Congress because there there are people there that you don't want in Congress. You know, with the, you know, the news ads, the political ads, you're taught to, you know, despise the other party. Yeah. And I think outside of that, and, you know, perhaps you do have the most important idea, but I think a lot of it is also just casual people who may not be like diehard Republicans or diehard Democrats. I think people just hate to see what seemingly is a broken system, a broken establishment, you know, because for better or for worse, the only things that you see and hear about Congress is the amount of disagreement, the amount of just nastiness that's out there. Uh, but between one side and another, you know, Congress doesn't toot their own horn well enough when it comes to passing legislation that's good for people. You know, people only really hear the bad things. They see how, quote unquote, the sausage gets made, which is, you know, a classic way of saying, you know, politics is a dirty process. And when people actually see how it happens, they're not into it. Right. Right. Um, and, and so I think just as much as this idea of you know, of not liking the other political party, I think people are just fed up of Congress not acting like adults. You know, right. all these all these squabblings, all these just refusals to work together on anything really drives a, a lot of people up the wall. Yeah, and it, it's one of those things like, you know, uh, with us being teachers in society, it's like how do you expect society to react and to be able to discuss openly about politics when 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 the leaders that we we elect to go to Washington to do our discussing for us can't even do that. So on this very same issue, 435 House members are up for election every other year. 35, 33 senators, whatever the election year depends on, you know, are up for election every other year. 
why don't we just throw them all out? What is it that keeps that from happening? Because people seem to really hate Congress. What's the catch? I mean, you always hear people say they hate Congress. They hate other Congress people. It's, it, it's never, it's never they, they don't like the ones from their state or their district. It's always the other Congress people. It's a really important idea is that people hate Congress, but they like their congressperson. Congress might have a 10% approval rating, but within a congressional district, their congressperson is going to be, you know, 60%. But approval. my guy's great. He, he's my guy's not the great. problem. My guy's great. Everyone else sucks, right? And that's kind of the pervasive uh, ideas that most people have regarding Congress. And, and that's, you know, for better or for worse, to each their own. Um, but it does represent a really odd and, and, you know, fascinating hypocrisy within our political system is how, you know, you, you are constantly going to elect the same people time in and time out. And on that very same note, something like 95% of incumbents win election every single year. You know, the people who are holding the seat win it back every single time. 95 might be a low number. It depends on the election itself. But in some elections, we're talking like 97, 98% of incumbents hold their seat. It's kind of that idea of, you know, you know, we're taught is, you know, I'm never the problem. So, so my district's not the problem. It's everything else out there that's the problem. We know how to pick them. You know, our representation's fine. And perhaps this is just one of those situations where there are far more problems than there are solutions. But that's part of why we're here as the Scuv Guys podcast is to try to help the new generation of future leaders you know, really try to understand what the problems are, what the issues are, and to try to teach them a little bit more about why politics can really just be so messy. And that's why Congress is just one of three branches in our three-part series, The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. Thank you so much for listening.